Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. Each week I tell you what this podcast is about, about product managers becoming product masters. And why is that important? Because product masters... Man, that's a whole new world. Product managers, frankly, that can be a frustrating role at times, right? We feel a lot of tensions, a lot of pressures. As a product master, you really are having the influence that you need to do what most of us really want to do, and that's create products that customers love, products that create more value. Product masters get to have more enjoyment in the work we do because we're doing what we love more of the time. We have more control over that, more influence over that, and the tips that we share on this podcast really help prepare you for that. And... This one is full of more. This episode is going to go into some areas to really help you. Now, I'm someone that really enjoys learning from books, and I often find great tips that I can apply from a good book, and that's just what I have for you. We're discussing a valuable new book, not even out yet, as you'll be listening to this. It's titled Testing Business Ideas, and it's full of practical experiments we can do as product managers to help us with that problem-solution fit. And now these are experiments to find evidence for the hypotheses that we make to help us, you know, find out what we know and don't know and help us also think more deeply about the assumptions surrounding a product concept. And the book describes 44, I was amazed by that, 44 different experiments along with why you use each one and how to use it. It will be a really important book to be on your bookshelf so you can easily refer to it when you need to do an experiment, when you need to validate a product concept and identify what you don't know and then experiment so you get that evidence that you do need. The lead author is David Bland. He helps companies find problem-solution fit using principles from lean startup, design thinking, and business model innovation. And remember, if you hear something that you want to go back to or something you want to share with others, the show notes is a great way to do that. We take the notes for you. You will find those at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 244. Hope you check them out. Now, let's talk to David. David, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks for having me. You are with uh, Strategizer in the sense of helping them write a new book. And Strategizer is probably best known for this business model canvas they've done. A one-page canvas that is this beautiful thing to highlight the nine elements of a business plan. And there were canvases around before this one. But this really created a movement, right? After people saw the value of putting ideas into one page and using that as a collaboration tool, all these other canvases have popped up. So that was a huge service Strategizer did making that thing for us. And they explained how it works in the book, The Business Model Generation. And then I know based on experiences they had using those concepts with businesses, they came out with another book on the value proposition canvas and the value proposition design. And now there's a third book that you're the lead author on called Testing Business Ideas. Can you tell us how this book came about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an honor to be able to write with uh, with Alex and uh, have Alan you know, visually implement uh, designs in the book. But basically, it came off just practice, right? So we kept using these canvases, and I partner a lot with Alex and um, Strategizer. Mm-hmm. And I was always trying to make it more actionable for, for team members and for people. And uh, they would make this great progress, and they would just get stuck. You know, um, They had kind of three go-to maybe experiments to run. It was uh, interviews, surveys, and, and maybe a landing page. And I just felt like there's so much more out there and uh, Alex approached me um, last summer and said, hey, why don't we just write a book together to help people, you know, 
be able to make progress and, and kind of scale this and give them something tangible um, because it's, you know, we've been doing it at a small scale with consulting and advising. Mm-hmm. And I just jumped at it. I mean, I wasn't going to turn down that opportunity. I'd been playing with book ideas in the past and just stalled out on every single one of them. And so having a co-author, I think, just helped me personally get uh, unstuck. And uh, yeah, that's how it came to be. And a year later, you know, here we are kind of handing it over to get published. And it's, it's just an amazing experience. Awesome. You mentioned uh, Alan there and his design skills. So for people that don't know the format of these books, and I assume testing business ideas is the same as the other, the previous two in format. It is. Right? Yeah. Th- th- these are really arts of, of work. They're beautifully laid out. They're kind of a, a wide format. They're graphically rich and they help bring the concepts to life. And it's just a more, frankly, a more pleasurable experience. They're, they're designed in a way that engages you more than a normal book on concepts. I enjoy that very much. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on this one. Not published yet, but it will be great when it is. We should talk about a little context here because our product managers are focused on products and everything I see from Strategizer in my mind applies really well, right? The original focus there might've been business models and business plans, and but you certainly have applied all that work to this innovation space and that's your space as well. Does testing business ideas, does this apply equally well to product ideas? It does. And they're so intertwined. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, without your product existing in a functioning business model, your product's not going to live on. It's you know, it might be something people love, but then it ultimately fails because it couldn't generate enough revenue or mm-hmm. the cost was just too high or you had the wrong distribution channels. So it's really interesting, even though it's framed as business ideas, once you look at the library, we have 44 experiments in the book. Wow. Uh, you'll, you'll find things in there that are very reminiscent of product experimentation. Um, so I think product managers are, are going to pick this up and, and it's going to feel very familiar with them. But it's also going to give them opportunity to expand beyond maybe their, their current skill set of just, oh, here are my go-to experiments to, oh, I could actually influence a business model by doing this and by doing this. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's really, um, they're very much intertwined and interconnected. And you think of like in the middle was kind of like your product, but then there's the other outer ring is the business and the outer ring of that is like the organization and then the market. And and so um, I think product managers have a lot of influence and their ability to kind of influence the business model. It's just, I'm hoping to give them superpowers there where they can just um, kind of use really small ways to kind of influence uh, the overall business. Yeah, I love that. I think two things will happen that would be really useful for listeners. One is just an exposure to a greater number of tools, right? So you talked about, you know, surveys and landing pages and interviews, user observations, you know, we know that space pretty well. I cannot come up with 44. I'm, I'm trying to go through my head. Like I know a lot of lot of ideation type tools and customer engagement tools, but I, I got to get my hands on this list from you and, and learn more about this. So I think that would be really helpful to make things very practical and show some options. And also the, the connection to the business perspective is really important to us as product managers. Right? We do care about the revenue picture, the uh, profit picture, how that connects into the correct business model for our product. So super helpful, I think. I would really like for listeners to walk away from this discussion with some tangible ideas that they can really take action on to know, you know, what, what, what kind of tests can we do to know that our product is going to be successful, right? If we're at that product validation sort of stage. And you organize the book into four sections. They're uh, prepare, method, experiments, and mindset. And we don't have time to go through all the details, but want, want to at least let you know, listeners know some key things. And in the prepare section, you talk about risk. And this is often where testing kind of comes in my mind as we're doing tests to address risk. Talk to us about risks and how we identify risks and why that's all important. Yeah. So 
this this book really picks up uh, after you have an idea or after mm. you have um, or a semblance of a product or just a, a more well-formed. Um, it's not an ideation book in the sense of, you know, we're going to go wide and go narrow mm-hmm. to ideate about ideas. Like you're coming with an idea to this book. So that's where the book starts and stuff. Okay. And in preparing. That's good context for us to know. Yep. Yeah. And in preparing, it comes back to, okay, we have to create a team that can actually pull this forward. We have to shape the idea a little more. And then with regards to risk, and that also kind of leads into the, to the method, which is how do we identify risk? How do we talk about risk? And so I really pull from design thinking there, whereas mm-hmm. um, uh, like you can trace it back to IDEO, but even further back to Larry Keeley and you know, the Keeley Triangle, which is this idea of desirable, viable, and feasible. And I've noticed a lot of this um, terminology getting pulled into the product management movement too. Mm-hmm. It's like when, when I speak recently at product management conferences, everybody's already speaking in the Venn diagram and in that language, which is amazing because um, it's kind of a somewhat validation of just, look, you have to, you have to have all three desirability. You have to know, do people want this? Is there a fit there whatsoever? Viability. Is this financially viable? Uh, mm-hmm. Should we be actually working on this? What kind of risks around, around that? And then feasibility, which is, can we, and can we, it's really interesting. I feel like that framing has gotten narrowed down to, just technical feasibility, but in reality, it's much bigger than that. You know, especially if you're operating in healthcare space or regulatory mm. uh, environments, where it may work technically, but you still can't take it forward because of the risk around uh, violating, you know, laws and regulations and policies and procedures. Mm-hmm. So, the idea of feasibility expanding beyond just technical feasibility is how we frame it. So, in risk, we look at through those three lenses, and then what we've done over the years is kind of just. Um, Alex and I have been playing with this, where we layer desirable, viable, feasible on top of the canvases, and we could start talking about risk that way. Because when you fill out your canvases, um, there's a bunch of assumptions and, and kind of uh, risk baked in there. Mm-hmm. And if you don't just go execute and feel like, okay, that's all fact, we just go execute and we're going to be fine. Um, so being able to kind of frame it and say, okay, let's write down explicitly what are our risks around desirability, like our value prop, the channels, or relationships, our customer segment. Um, what are our risks around viability? Things like our cost structure and revenue stream. Do we have some kind of risk there? And then also on the feasibility, like around key partners, key activities, resources, can we do what we need to support this and make this work? Hmm. And once you start breaking it down that way, it feels kind of less overwhelming for people. And they could talk about it as a team. And then basically what we do is a two-by-two two, um, called assumptions mapping, which I first learned from uh, Jeff and Josh I used to work with. At, um, they were at Lean UX and Sense hmm. Respond. And um, I kind of customized their two-by-two exercise over the years to just get teams to talk to each other and say, okay, if we get a balanced team together to talk about risk, what is the riskiest thing? Because not everything is the make or break, kill your business kind of risk or kill your product. So it's been really cool to kind of see that evolve over the years um, because this is something I've been doing with teams over time. And so being able to frame it in a canvas, theme it, do a two-by-two, and then say, hey, based on this risk, what, what kind of experiments we should run. So it kind of anchors your um, experimentation. Okay, so some really good practical actions we can take there. One, you're creating a framework to identify risks and talk about risks along those three dimensions, right? Three categories, desirability, viability, and feasibility. And in feasibility, I don't know if you're supposed to address this or not. The, I often also add the aspect of should, should we do it, right? Not just can we do it, but are we the right ones to do it? And then one of my best examples of that that I love is 
who was it was the Memorex guys that, that made tapes, right? And they were really good at plastic manufacturing, and they decided to get into the business of disposable razors. It never took off because no one expects Memorex to be making disposable razors, right? So should we do it too? So, but I really like that framework. I would never have thought of that. So desirability, viability, and feasibility, and lining up risks for that. How do you connect that to your two-by-two two matrix to now leading into what's riskiest and what to do? Yeah, so the two by two, basically, we're just writing these down, you know, as themes. So like, write down all your desirability risks, or all your uh, viability and all your feasibility. And we usually do different colors. So I, I like orange, green and blue, but you can use whatever colors you want. And then the two by two, the axes are um, kind of important and unimportant. So mm-hmm. vertically, and then horizontal, it's um, uh, basically have evidence and no evidence. So we, we kind of landed on that over the years, because you know, other terminology, uh, it can get misconstrued. So for example, if we just say certain and uncertain, I, I find that sometimes people project uh, confidence and they're certain about something, but they have no evidence. Right. <laughs> so we're just being really explicit about this of, hey, you either have evidence and that could be stuff you've generated. It could be stuff in the market already as a proxy. Mm-hmm. It has to be recent, you know, um, and applicable. But uh, we, we basically, so so their axes are uh, important, unimportant, and uh, have okay. evidence and no evidence. And so once you start putting them up, uh, it goes pretty quickly because you could say, well, how important is this and how much evidence do we have? You know, uh, And so if you take one of your desirability assumptions, you just throw it up there. And then once you get that up there um, as a team, you can talk about the next one and say, okay, is this more or less important? And do we have more or less evidence, right? So it becomes like this reference point and then the team kind of works through it. And I, it's it's really a fascinating to facilitate because I can never predict predict where the team is going to end up. Mm-hmm. Like I have a hunch sometimes, like if you've never talked to your customers, you probably have some desirability risk, but um, it's really interesting to me, like what's above and below the line. So what they think is important and unimportant. And then also where they feel they land with, okay, if this thing right here, this sticky note is wrong, we're in big trouble because we're all agreeing that this is really, really important, but we have no evidence whatsoever mm-hmm. to support it. So um, in a way it's me just tricking people to talk to each other. Right. Um, but it, what comes out is this kind of map of where our risk is. And then um, you know, what we do with the book is we say, okay, so based on that kind of risk, here are some options for you to go address that versus just all walk out of the room and say, okay, well, that's really risky. Um, you don't want to snowplow all that risk to the end. You want right. to actually iterate your way through it and pay down, pay down that risk over time. So um, yeah, it's been really fascinating for me to work because I work with all kinds of different companies mm-hmm. like automotive and consumer packaged goods and financial and all, all kinds of different software companies. Um, but they all have these same three kinds of risks. Like, yep. you know, do people want this? Should we be working on this? And can we? And so it doesn't matter what your product idea is or business idea is. Those three themes kind of hold up um, regardless when it comes to risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are really good. And that practicality of using the two by two, I love that. And the other important tip there is you get the group talking to each other, right? It's a great collaboration tool. And there's some value as you do it, kind of being that outside person too, because you could do this on your own and capture it the way they would. They have to do the work themselves. But at the same time, it's useful. Sometimes I call this the pizza delivery person approach, right? It's that person that just shows up, knows nothing about the space, but might offer a useful outside perspective. And just help them think about things a little bit differently. Why did you put that one, you know, above the line versus below the line? And what does it mean that you think you have evidence? What does that evidence really get them to dig a little deeper? Hey, Dad, I think you should interrupt this interview to tell your listeners something important. Oh, what's that? You should tell them about your new mini course. 
Oh, okay. What do you suggest? You could interview yourself. <laughs> okay, how would that work? It would go like this. Hi, Chad. Tell me about your new mini course. Thanks for asking, Chad. I just published the second edition of my book, Turning Ideas into Market-Winning Products. The mini course covers some of the key ideas from the book. Brilliant! What sort of ideas? You'll discover what to do as a product developer, manager, and innovator, methods for finding and testing ideas that lead to valuable products customers love, how to really use the minimal viable product approach, and much more. Splendid! Is it free? Yes, it is. And you don't need the book to get value from the mini course. Capital! How much time do I need to complete the course? I made it short. Each lesson is only five minutes, and you'll receive a new lesson every two days in your email box. Wow! Where can I get it? Just head over to www.theeverydayinnovator.com/book. Huzzah! What was that again? www.theeverydayinnovator.com/book. Um, there's just one problem. I can't speak with an English accent. Oh, no problem. I'll do it for you. <laughs> Now you have a framework in place to lead directly into where do we not have evidence and what do we do about that, right? Correct. Okay. So tell us what happens next then. So now it's about you know running your first experiment and making that a repeatable process. And and so there's almost levels here. There's like well we've never ran an experiment before, so mm -hmm. we need to do one. You know, and then it's okay. So how do we keep doing that over time uh, based on our you know cycles and whatnot? And then it's wow, we need to get multiple teams working this way. And eventually, you know, your whole company is kind of buying into this idea of, you know, entrepreneurial uh, experience, like entrepreneurial way of working. Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to experiment on everything, right? That's why we do the two by two, because some things are off the table, some things you don't need to generate evidence on. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's really getting through that loop. So basically, uh, the way we laid out in the book, and which is based on my uh, advising and, and workshops, mm -hmm. is once you get that two by two, we give you an option of, okay, here are your, here are your ways you could go about this. Which one you, you think would fit? And often there's a conversation there of uh, me giving advice based on what I've seen in the industry, but also them, like you said, bringing their domain expertise and they may know the market really well, you know, because I'm not an expert in all these different businesses I advise on. So how do we marry that up? And, and so basically there's a conversation and then we agree on, okay, maybe there are a couple experiments we want to run. And it's really interesting because you start kind of building this discovery backlog of, okay, there's some activity we need to do to uncover, um, you know, our risk and, and basically shape what we're doing in our roadmap and in our, uh, in our plan. So it's, it's really kind of like getting that first one, you know, through and, and then managing that process through, okay, to make this a repeatable thing, we're going to have to integrate it into how we work. So the ceremony is like, if you're doing stand-ups, you talk about the the, the experiment discovery work yeah. in your stand-up with everything else. Uh, if you're doing planning, you plan your experiments as well. Um, when you do your reviews, you share out what you've learned, right? Um, so what we've done is kind of lay out the ceremonies we've seen happen that actually work. You know, it doesn't mean you have to do it by the book, but um, I've learned over the years is if you don't track this work where you track all of your other work, and if you don't integrate this into kind of how you're working already as a team 
it kind of gets pushed off and it may or may not happen or it may happen in isolation. Hmm. And that's not the goal. The goal is to, you know, for people to be really connected to the why of the work and everyone to understand risk and how to contribute and pay that down. So, um, yeah, so it's just really about getting through that loop once and then making it a repeatable process. Okay. So it really, it needs to become kind of part of the culture. I love that aspect because things that we don't practice regularly, you know, don't become part of the culture. And I'm trying to remember the context was I was talking with someone recently just about this notion of needing to change the culture to adopt more of an experiment mentality, right? That we, sometimes these conversations come up where we are just going to blindly go down a path, launch it to the marketplace, and then we'll judge if we're successful or not. Where along the way, there's some things that we could have done and there were probably some quick, easy, low-cost experiments we could have done to better gauge if we were going to be successful or not, right? So, so building that attitude just in, that expectation, like, we should be testing as we go is really important. I, I agree. And that's, you know, if you're a startup or if you're a big corporation, I think um, what's interesting are the dynamics behind that incentive, uh, those incentives to, to experiment. So, for example, uh, I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley, right, uh, working out here and doing a lot of um, advising at, at accelerators and startups. It's really interesting to me because when you raise a bunch of money, you're not very incentivized to experiment. It's more mm-hmm. like, we're going to spend that money and we're going to build the best thing. And if we get it right, we look like geniuses. If we get it wrong, the culture out here is such as like, well, people congratulate you for creating your company, basically. And then right. you go raise more money and do it again. It's really it's kind of interesting, a, isn't it? The culture uh, is super interesting. However, when I spend time kind of like in the middle of the country, right, or uh, in more rural areas, they don't have the access to capital. So I watch them and it's amazing to me. Like I've spent a lot of time in the middle of the country the last couple of years and they bootstrap their way using experiments. They get to the point where they feel like they need to raise to, to scale and then they go raise and they own more of their company. But like the incentive is there, right? If it's your, if you're bootstrapping or you're putting your own money into this, you you're not just going to usually just build forever and launch it and hope for the best. Like right. it's really interesting because we frame entrepreneurs as being really risky people, but most of the entrepreneurs I speak to are not risky at all. They're like, right. They're very I have to pay down my risk. I am really risk averse, but I think this is a good idea and this is how I'm going to address it. Yeah. Now look at corporate side. Okay. Same thing happens. You know, if you give 20 engineers to a team and a bunch of like runway, they're going to build like that's what they're going to do. And they're going to build like really elaborate things that maybe people don't care about uh-huh. versus you incrementally fund a team uh, and you have a cross-functional team that's like product design, engineering and whatever you need to ship and learn in the market together. They're just going to be much more methodical, I think, about it and, and more incentivized to test because they know they need to have to share progress to say, uh-huh. OK, we could get more funding. So it's really and when I pull that thread and I see the incentives behind this behavior and how you build this culture. I think sometimes we unintentionally undermine it by saying, we're going to give you like this to go do this thing. And we're measuring kind of the outputs of the thing. And it's just really tough for me to show the value of experimenting when it's like, well, what's in it for me to experiment? I already have this money or I have this big team. I'm just going to go, you know, go build. Yeah. It needs to become a value of the people doing the work and hopefully of the organization to make this uh, more practical for us. Can you give us a specific example of made that link between a you know high risk no evidence situation and a test that was chosen for that and then how do we go about conducting that test and and collecting data and analyzing the data? Yeah, one of the case studies we have uh, in the book is this startup I really love, uh, which which is called uh, Topology. They basically have an app that measures your face. Uh, we both wear glasses, so mm-hmm. this will probably feel to us. Um, 
and it, it you, they custom make glasses that specifically measured to your face oh, rather nice. than like getting something that's kind of and they bend it and everything else. Um, but but I, I happened upon them because we kept going to the same meetups together, and I've never really officially advised them or anything. We just kept ending up at the same mm-hmm. conferences and meetups. And and the, when I learned about how they worked, it was really fascinating to me because there there are some big inherent risks in building a business like that. You know, when you're the product manager of okay. People have to trust this app works when they take a virtual selfie and it measures. And then right. uh, will they pay, you know, several hundred dollars for glasses that fit really well or really not? And and then how do you manufacture those and whatnot? And so what they ended up doing was a pop-up store. Hmm. And I really wish more of like um, at least physical product companies would try this out because you, it's not necessarily about scaling and distribution right away. It's about okay, does anybody have this problem? Mm-hmm. Can we learn by, you know, the kind of boots on the ground? And so they had a pop-up store. Um, they intercepted people that were walking down the street and started talking to them about their glasses and how they fit and whether they even had the problem. Um, when they started kind of responding well, they, they kind of led them into the store and they had the, the glasses kind of behind a case and they had the app and everything. And they kind of walked people through this very concierge experience of, of what it would be like to use the app. And, you know, and that whole time they're taking great notes. They're seeing like um, qualitatively what are people saying. Uh, what it found out is basically the quotes that they um, received. They now have on their website and their ad copy, basically like voice of the customer. You know that they gathered uh, and curated themselves. Um, they had some people willing to pay, so they said, "Hey, when can I buy this now? Like, mm-hmm. I want a pair of these." So they were able to get pre-orders and everything, even though that wasn't the specific intent of the test. And so um, it's it's something that it does you don't run it very long right it's a pop up store or a retail store but you know it's something where you as a team can go out together and learn firsthand like not through layers and layers of abstraction what customers are really saying and you know is there any signal whatsoever so it, it was very risky because you know all the cost and um, the technology investment of just making something that measures your face virtually mm-hmm. you know, is, is huge. And so if you... And even beyond that, all the things you might get wrong in doing that, right? The path you go down might still be the wrong path, right? There's lots of ways to solve that problem. So like, what if people are fine with their glasses? Maybe they like complains, you know? So it's really interesting. So that that is one where um, we we talk about in the book, but the idea of a pop-up store, I think is very fascinating to me because you... Um, and there are other retailers that have done that in the past where they do pop-ups within there. Like Nordstrom used to do this all the time in Nordstrom mm-hmm. Labs where... Yeah, Nordstrom Labs was in. great. I'm disappointed they're not around anymore, but... Me too, uh, yeah. But they were. I think they were on the right track with regards yeah. to what kinds of experiments should we run to learn from customers. Yeah. Um, and they would do an experiment forward. in a store, right, over the course of a week and develop a, have a working prototype at the end of the week from real interactions with customers. Kind of like this pop-up store, right? The, what I love about this pop-up store idea is when you first talked about this, there were several kinds of risks that are involved in that. Do people even care about this? Are people likely to you know, go through this effort? Is this how they want to buy glasses? You know, th- things to investigate. And they can all be solved through that personal experience from the pop-up store. Um, I happen to be a fan of the TV show uh, The Prophet. Have you ever seen this with uh, Marcus... Marcus Linus, so. I've seen a couple episodes of that one. I think. He's the owner of Camping World. And on the show, he goes in and uh, decides to, or not to, to, 
to invest in small businesses and then make them work better, right? And, they, and they're, they're, it's great to watch because all businesses have problems. They no doubt highlight the really big problems and for the sake of the TV show. But often you'll see the scene if it's like a retail type store where he'll be out there on the sidewalk doing his best to grab people to get them to go into the store. And he'll be out there with products, you know, and saying, hey, check this out. Feel this. What, what do you think of this? Is this something you'd be interested in? Hey, can you come in and look at some of the other things and give us feedback on that? And it's just a great example of we have to have that customer interaction and actual feedback to know if we're on the right path or not. Oh, for sure. And it's amazing to me in the retail space, like the retail space in, in itself is struggling. But uh, I've worked with retailers before where they don't really onboard their customers. So like you become a member of a, a store and uh, if you're not really shown the ropes, you kind of have, you're mm-hmm. lost. You just mimic what other people are doing. And then that path, which is amazing to me, is something crazy like 70 to 80% of the time, whatever path you took the first time through the store is the path you're going to take when you come back through the store. Mm-hmm. So if you only explore maybe 30% of the store, you don't even know what's like back there in the corner and, and especially with the bigger retail stores. So uh, yeah, like even experimenting through that with customers mm-hmm. saying, well, how would we onboard a customer to explore more of our store and get more value. So it's interesting because a lot of this, when we talk about product management is very software based, right. but it, it totally applies to retail and physical uh, as well. Yeah. And the software products, they still have that UX component everyone cares about and it's interaction with the user, with the customer. So good. Just briefly on this. So they, they did the pop-up store. You said they're collecting all kinds of notes uh, through this experience. What did they do to analyze the data and then apply that? Yeah, so they synthesized it. They had different approaches um, to kind of synthesize the interview notes and, and everything else. And basically, they just did multiple rounds of pop-up stores. Mm-hmm, okay. And then they also, um, they just redesigned their website like a few weeks ago or a month ago. And so I noticed, you know, in talking to them, a lot of the just, they kept all that qualitative uh, information, like data. So a lot of these great quotes just happened to make it into, or not by coincidence, um, you know, into their ad copy, into their their, their headline on their page and the image yeah. and the voice and it's amazing to me because I feel like as product people, sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, why, well, if we had this one more feature, it would convert better. Or if it looked this way, it would convert better. Mm-hmm. But so often you can uh, greatly increase conversion rate by just using the voice of the customer and using their own words. Right. Because we're so like deep subject matter experts that, you know, the words we use are not the words they, that uh, our customers use sometimes. And yep. so sometimes it's just, you just change that headline to something that, literally you've heard customers say mm-hmm. <laughs> like explain my product back to me you know in your own words and conversions go up just because they get it so right. i think sometimes we're over analyzing overthinking um but yeah i thought they did a great job of capturing all that information and then using it in their marketing copy using it in their uh, in their in their website yeah and that's such an important tip so everyday innovators don't want that one to go by and get missed this happens way too often that we have the product developer, product management group, and then marketing communications, maybe market planning separate and not really integrated well. And the things that we're learning as product managers about what the customer really wants, if we just take those words that we hear and we give them to whoever's doing the, the marketing communication work, that will help them so much. and will make our product more effective. Too often things just get lost there. So that, that's a great example about how they did that with the pop-up stores and the the data they collected. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. Um, What did you choose for us? And just tell us about what that one means to you. Yeah, so I chose um, the bottleneck is um, always at the top of the bottle uh, by Peter Drucker. And um, what I mean by that is, 
you know, in organizations, you're trying to create this culture. Um, even if you're a director or chief product officer, you're trying to create a, your team to be, you know, like create more leaders and whatnot. And I feel like um, so often our view of leadership is pretty much this egocentric, uh, not, not in a bad way, but just in a, I have to project expertise, you know, I want to make the decisions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of um, slows everything down, right? right? So if they're waiting for you to make a decision on something versus pushing that decision down to where the information is and having them make the decision. So I like that quote. I've heard many executives say it uh, when, when I'm visiting uh, different companies. And I think it's it's really interesting in the sense of, okay, if I realize my job as a leader isn't to uh, make all the decisions and communicate expertise, but it's more of how do I create more leaders around me mm-hmm. and how do I kind of um, democratize this in a way? Um, then that's a, it's a very different uh, spin on leadership, right? It's more yes. facilitative. It's more leading with questions instead of leading with answers. Um, and and I maybe perhaps I'm biased because um, a lot of the work I do is around experimentation. But I feel like if you can help leaders understand that when teams bring their information and they say, look, um, here's a hypothesis we had, here's the experiments we ran, here's the evidence we generated. And based on what we think, we should go this way. Mm-hmm. And the way leaders interact with that is very important, right? So if you interact with, um, well, I think you should build it anyway, even if the, all the information says no, then you're kind of undermining that um, culture you're trying to build of, right. hey, I want these teams to kind of figure this out. I don't want them to go like completely off, you know, in a different direction. But if there are some guardrails on it where they can play, like defining your playground, um, then, and then I should be able as a leader to lead with questions and help kind of understand, better understand, why did you make that decision? and um, explain this evidence a little more to me and, and, and whatnot, because a good leader should have a, a really um, a wide slice of what's going on in the organization right. that maybe this team doesn't have its perspective. So I've seen instances where leaders could connect things in ways that the team wasn't even aware or like another team was working on something that this would benefit. So um, I just feel like it's a really interesting quote in the sense of as leaders, I feel like we have some unlearning there to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was quoting my friend, Barry O'Reilly there. Uh, we, we have some unlearning to do because basically, you know, uh, we can't always be the decision maker. We can't always be the expert, especially if we're trying to incentivize and, and build this culture of experimentation because it's all about, hey, we tried something, we learned, and then we move forward and put that into action. And yeah. sometimes our, our behaviors um, kind of conflict there. And part of that is this is talked about a lot, and I don't think always effectively, this notion of failing, right? That when we're doing something new, we're, we're learning from that and we're going to have things that maybe look like failures. We do the experiments so we can figure out what we know and what we don't know, right? And an aspect of leadership that I think is really helpful for this is to kind of set that tone that things aren't always perfect. And just one practical tip that I've come across that's so helpful is when leaders themselves admit when they did something wrong, when they made the wrong decision, even if they go back to like school, like, you know, I never passed that programming class, you know, the, the first time I took it, right? Just just to let everyone know that they're not perfect either and that we are learning together. That really can change a culture. It can. And I think um, one of the things I always ask when I'm meeting with leaders is, when's the last time you said, I don't know, mm. like in front of your team, in front of your peers? And it's very interesting how they respond to that question yeah. because sometimes it's, well, I never say that. Like, why would I ever say that? I have to always know. Right. Versus the other ones that I just said, I don't know yesterday in a meeting because, you know, uh, I didn't want to project confidence in something that I didn't quite understand. Mm-hmm. So I kind of put it back to the team, like, how would you approach this? And and so it's really interesting, um, a, a sign anyway, mm-hmm. for, for leaders who are just 
maybe it becomes a just if I say I don't know, then uh, it undermines my like leadership position. But I don't find that being the case. No, granted, you can't say I don't know I, all the time. <laughs> I actually have found the opposite. And I still, as you said that, I flash back to 1999, right before the dot-com bubble, and my VP of sales that I was working with, when he said that in a meeting with not just, there were other executives in the meeting too, and, uh, and it caught my attention, like, oh, you're admitting that you don't know on something that we might kind of expect that we thought you probably would, right? And it was just super powerful, and it elevated him, in my mind, as a leader, uh, not, not the opposite. Yeah, and I think on the flip side, right? If you don't know and you you try to come up with your best guess, and right? Say, like, I'm very confident in this direction, and then they go down that path and it proves untrue. Yeah, then that's much more damaging. I feel because you you kind of like if you're trying to project this expert all the time attitude, and then you say this go this is going to be a win, just do this, and then it doesn't happen mm-hmm. that way. It, um, you kind yeah. of shakes your moral uh, foundations of what leadership means, right? So. Right. Um, yeah, I, so I do think this style of work does require at least an awareness of your leadership style. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't mean you're never uh, directive. It, that's not the case. But when people are bringing evidence and saying, hey, this is what we learned, this is what we want to try, just being mindful of, okay, as a leader, um, how should I respond in this yeah. setting? Because this isn't your typical, oh, well, yeah, if we just increase like this thing, it'll increase revenue, right? It's, it's a little different scenario. So. Right. Um, yeah, so it's just really interesting to me, um, like what's our next step as, as kind of helping leaders become more comfortable in this, this mm-hmm. style of work. Good. Well, I appreciate the tips, some really good concrete information for testing business ideas and certainly applicable to our world as product developers, product managers, innovators. The book coming out is testing business ideas. Great title, very descriptive for people that want to know more about the work, how you kind of get to this point where you're helping companies with this. Tell us how they can find out about you and your work and also when the book we think might be available and just how to keep up with what's going on with the book. Yeah, for sure. So there are two really main sources of information. Uh, there, there's my my site, which is precoil, P-R-E-C-O-I-L.com. Uh, and I do a lot of partnering with Strategizer. So also um, the Strategizer site, we both have the book uh, information hosted there. And okay. then it's already available for pre-order on Amazon. Okay. Um, we're aiming for this fall. So we'll see, depending on the publisher, if that, that holds true. But it's certainly at a point of... Um, uh, being done. It's just more of the logistics of getting it out there in, in distribution. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to get it in people's hands and just, uh, you know, just giving people more options. Uh, so they, they feel like they're supported in trying to find their way through, uh, you know, whether their product will sustain or not. Excellent. David, thank you so much for the time. I'm really excited to get my hands on the book. I want to learn about those 44 approaches to testing ideas And the framework was so clear for identifying risks and how then that leads into experiments we can do and collecting the data and applying that. So really good. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master. Doing what? Learning that practical knowledge that you need, that foundational, really important knowledge, that knowledge that gives you more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with David at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 244. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.